Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. I'm joined by Heidi White. Heidi, welcome back. How's it going? Hey, thanks. I'm doing great. How about you? Doing well. So we are here to talk about Act 4 of Henry V, Shakespeare's play. And like many of Shakespeare's plays, maybe all of them, Act 4 is where the bulk of the action happens. In this case, it's literally where the action happens. Um, And that means it's a little bit longer and there's a lot going on. So I say we just dive right in. Are you good with that? Absolutely. We will we'll, uh, dispense with the seasonal small talk and things like that since most people or many people don't listen to this, you know, when we recorded. So a lot of people are going back to it. So we'll we'll dive right in here. And, and I've been thinking about the uh, way this play has been interpreted a lot. So mm-hmm. last night after I finished reading Act 4, I went and watched some YouTube clips because, of course, this the speech making in this act is... You know, among Shakespeare's most famous, right? You've got the Agincourt speech, the 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 whole "We few, we happy few." One of the, the one of the most famous, if not well, probably "To be or not to be" is more famous. Other than that, maybe it's the most famous. Yeah, this is probably number two, and his only soliloquies, two short ones here in this act. And that's really fun to watch actors perform those too. Hmm. Yeah, so, so it's just like jam packed with drama. Yes. And, so I was on YouTube. I watched the Kenneth Branagh stuff. I watched, I haven't seen the hollow crown, but I watched their versions, their take on some of these speeches and you, the, YouTube's got Lawrence Olivier and you know, any number of other versions of performance. So I was wondering if you, I guess I'm curious if you, how, how you sort of read the tone with which Henry is giving these speeches because you know, um, wait, who's the hollow crown guy? Um, um. <laughs> well, Kenneth Branagh obviously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh is one, and then the hologram. But anyway, I'll look it up real quick. But they they do their interpretations are pretty different, right? Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, there I don't want to call him yeah. Tim. Uh huh. Tom Hiddleston His and Kenneth Branagh. Hard for me to remember every time. It doesn't look like a Tom. <laughs> it's true. Um. 
Okay, so their but their interpretations are are pretty different. Obviously, Hiddleston that that version is not going to just sort of bring back the Kenneth Branagh sort of stirring, climbing up on mm-hmm. the on the the stage on the on the wagon speech making type of scenario. But how do you read? Like, if you were giving that speech, if you were giving that speech, how would you perform it? Like, what? How do you read Henry in these in these these scenes here? Well. The only time he tells us how he's feeling is after the battle. Exactly. You just never know how Henry is feeling. Um, So he's in these speeches, he's doing something, right? He is, it's, it's rhetoric in the classical sense of the term, not the way we use it when we talk about political rhetoric, but the, the, the classical sense of persuasion to action, that's what's happening in these speeches, particularly the Agincourt speech. Um, so I would, I do read it as performance, whether or not he means it or what he's feeling inside. I mean, he's, as we see from his Henry Leroy persona and his speeches, there is some insecurity in Henry as he's approaching this battle. He doesn't know whether he's going to win. He knows he's got a demoralized, sick and diseased army on his hand. And he's clearly morally tormented as to whether or not God is on his side. So, Mm -hmm. and I do read these speeches as a call to action of the troops. And so when I read it, I imagine him in performance mode, not necessarily in a bad way. I don't judge him for that. I think that's what's called for in this situation. And he, Henry always does what's called for. <laughs> um, he, he completes the ceremony, right? This big theme in this act. So I do read it as like a patriotically stirring speech and as a warrior, um, a soldier who knows his life is at risk and that he is asking people to, to, to die for his cause. So he has to stir them up. We talked a little bit about, you know, how he uses imagination mm-hmm. to, you know, or how the play does, you know, rhetorical uses imagination as a rhetorical device. Do you think, do you, so, so would you then read it? I mean, Branagh gets up on the stage and he's, he's, it's meant to be a very rousing sort of thing. Whereas the Hiddleston version is, I read it, or I, I took his interpretation to be a more sort of contemplative approach. Mm. You know, he's more like, you know, this is, yeah. I don't want to say it's un- he's unsure of himself. Right. Uh, I don't think that's what Hiddleston's saying there, but it's certainly not climb up on the, climb up on the wagon and, and yell out the lines. And, you know, I think Branagh pulls off what he's doing there. It's sort of cl- this sort of classical drama in a sense. There. Mm-hmm. It's, um, because sort of what it's sort of the uh, Mel Gibson and Braveheart type of speech, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. Russell Crowe and the Gladiator. <laughs> uh, right. Do you? So do you do you think he is? Do you, so you do or you don't think he's sure of himself in these speeches? No, oh, that's a, that's a good question. I, I'm hesitant to take a stand on it, not because I don't. I think because he's, no, I don't think he's sure of himself, but I think Hiddleston, I, 
I think that he nails the speech and like the whole scene is so this whole act is performed so beautifully in the hollow crown. Uh, and I think that one of the ways that film that Shakespeare comes alive in film, I, I personally, my personal opinion is that film is the very best venue for Shakespeare. Uh, and I, because the film versions can play, play these scenes, these battle scenes so powerfully and slowly like yes. you can you can you can kind of linger in them you can go you can it, you can uh make them not feel as jumpy as they sometimes can on stage or when you're reading the play right and i think one i i don't want to rave too much about the hollow crown but one <laughs> thing that the hollow crown does i think better than any other i mean i'm going to go out on a limb here i've never seen better film versions of the of the shakespearean uh, history plays than the hollow crown. They're fantastic. And one of the reasons I think is because the sets, like it's just a visual feast to see the, the cinematography of how they've made these plays. And, and part of that I think is because they know that not everybody understands Shakespearean English. And so they're trying to get people to get what's going on through the vision, through the cinematography through the visual experience of watching the play. So while Hiddleston's giving a speech, you're seeing, you know, the camera work on people's faces. You're seeing how they're responding to him. And I think he does nail the speech, but I think he is, um, he's trying so much to express his character. I'm not quite sure he expresses the, the necessary performance value of this. I, I think Brando does a better job, but I also think that Brando is a little bit, like I said, a few podcasts ago, a little bit too noble as Henry V. Like he plays it so patriotically that you just kind of buy him as he is. Uh, but with Hiddleston, you see a lot more of the kind of the ambiguity of his more moral character. Um, but I like the way that Hiddleston does this speech, but I think it should be played as just pure theater and performance and, um, you know, patriotic rhetoric in some ways, but all he's like, you know, I guess also, he's also a soldier. He's about to go risk his own life. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that definitely comes across in Hiddleston. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's know, what did of, you think? Well, I think I agree. I think I agree with what you're saying there. I, I like the Brenna version of the play in part, perhaps because, you know, I grew up with that, you know, uh-huh. I saw it when I was really young and we watched it all the time. And it, so I, the, you know, there's, there's scenes in that, that I remember so well, like as I'm reading and I can, certain lines would come to come to mind. And as I said, I say once more into the breach all the time to my kids, mm-hmm. but, um, and, and that's because of, not because I read it a bunch. It's because I remembered Kenneth Branagh rearing up on the horse and with a flaming castle behind him. Um, but there's this theme throughout this whole act here. And this is why I ask that of preparation and of sort of <laughs> girding your loins, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's e- even in the, um, even in the chorus, he talks about, um, giving dreadful note of preparation mm-hmm. um, that the French are, you know, on the one hand, the French are, they're proud of their numbers. Their, their preparation is, is um, arrogance. It's to play mm-hmm. games. It's to talk down. Right. And the English, the preparation is so much more contemplative and prayerful in a way. I mean, you, and, and even in the way throughout these acts, I think I counted something like 10 different times when in Henry's speech, 
he says, oh God, mm-hmm. or, something, or God wills or something like that, something related to that, some sort of ostensibly prayerful phrase. And sometimes it's, you know, it's sort of an anger and sometimes it's actually in prayer and sometimes he's, you know, saying Lord willing, essentially. But the whole act has throughout it, every scene is building up to this battle that's actually really off stage. I mean, it's not off stage, but it's off book, you know? So mm-hmm. the, it's a whole act of preparation and then, and then aftermath. And yeah, mm-hmm. and, and so I think, you know, it, on stage, you're going to have a, you're probably going to have a battle that lasts like five minutes, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And the rest of it is, and so in that way, it's sort of, it, it's just sort of anticlimactic by design in a sense, mm-hmm. because it's page after page and line after line of people preparing. And the, and the whole play up to this point has asked the question of whether it's worth it. And then it leads up to the last moments before the thing that's worth it happens. Right. And right. that's you know, the way Shakespeare builds up to that is really interesting. And so, you know, you see people questioning their own, their own sort of courage, their own strength, whether they're going to be able to endure, what's it, are they going to live or die? You know, all these questions are coming up and they're very sort of poignant questions. They're very dramatic questions. And you're seeing these very brave people reckoning with their own courage. Right. Um, and on the French side, you know, sort of boasting in it. And on the English side saying, we are outmanned. Are we going to uh, live up to the way we see ourselves? That code right. we talked about, right? It seems like they're constantly, you know, it doesn't seem like they're afraid to die. It's this question of, are we going to live up to this code? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think particularly for certain characters, I think that's absolutely true. And, uh, but I also think act excuse me, scene one, when Henry is dressed up as Henry Leroy and talking. And as I'm sure, well, I'm sure you noticed the same thing, David, almost that entire conversation that he has with his men when they're discussing the morality of Henry's cause and whether or not Henry is going to lead them well on the following day, of course, they don't know they're talking to Henry. He's disguised, but they're having this conversation and that's all in prose. Yeah. I noticed that. that yeah. I'm sure you did. And I'm, that stood out to me. Uh, in even, reference to even what, Henry speaking is in prose. Exactly. Which that stood out to me, particularly in relation to what you just said, the question of the morality of war and the, um, the, the personal fear that comes from, I might not live to see another day. I might die tomorrow in this battle that I don't, you know, I don't know if I believe, I don't know if I'm here for the right reasons that the weight of that is on Henry plus, but the weight of that in, in a way is even is carried by the men, mm-hmm. by the soldiers. They're the ones who are going to die that day. I was sure. Go ahead, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Well, and I, I think to tie that into what you said, that idea of being worthy, like how else could you possibly um, p- give yourself a pep talk on the eve of a battle other than that, right? Am I going to die <laughs> in a worthy manner? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, is the cause I'm fighting for just, is, uh, uh, is God on my side, which is something that Henry battles with that night. And um, if I do die, will I die 
the nobly. way I should die. Yeah, nobly. Yeah, and I was struck by the fact that Williams in that conversation, the things he says, you know, this is going to be on Henry's head basically. Yeah. Is the exact same case that Henry makes to the French prince. Mm-hmm. It's like all yes. these people, all these all these widows, there's, that's going to be on you depending on the decision you make right now. And that's Williams right. sort of says the same thing to Henry. And then you see Henry reckoning with that reality afterwards, you know, like he kind of, after they all leave, he's sort of like processing that fact himself. I mean, he yes. gives, he gives a long speech there in response to that kind of defending his case, obviously not as, as obviously as Henry Leroy, not as, not as Henry. Right. But, um, basically saying, you know, the, uh, it's not on you. Don't worry. <laughs> right. And the fact that it's all in prose, I think is very, goes back to so many conversations that we have had about the union of form and meaning that this whole conversation is just that it's a conversation. It's people talking the kind of, you know, the words are at a much higher level than the average conversation in English, but it's still, you know, sentences that are connected to each other, not um, in in prose. And so you have this idea of laying aside, you have this sense of laying aside ceremony uh, mm-hmm. in order to present arguments to the audience, right? And that's, it's really interesting. We talked last week about how so much of what Henry says is not really a conversation. It's not really two other people. Right. And then when he does speak to them, as you noted, it's all in prose. And the minute they leave, he's back to, and he's kind of back to himself. Mm-hmm. It's back to verse again. Right. Yeah. As soon as Bates and the other people leave. Right. But this scene right here, you're exactly right, is so key that it, it adds this poignancy to this whole act, which, as you pointed out, is a very public act. And uh, the, the act is full of ceremony, preparation, um, Henry giving orders, uh, Henry talking to messengers and to his lords, the French people giving, like there's, there's all of this very, uh, and obviously a battle is very public. Uh, there's all of this public display and ceremony going on. And then there's just this private conversation, which you pointed out that Henry rarely has conversations. And the only way he can have a conversation is because he's in disguise because he's, this is the play within the play. Every Shakespearean play has this, right? This idea of a performance that, that is known to the audience, but, um, but the people within are deceived by it, right? So this is the play within the play. Henry is putting on his own play. Um, and this is the only chance he has to actually talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. But then again, the conversation is all about him and his performance and whether or not he's doing a good job and whether or not his leadership is worth following and whether or not these people that he is talking to, these human beings, are going to die the next day because of his choices. And he reckons with that, he wrestles with that. Um, and it just adds this pathos and this poignancy to the entire play, but particularly to the battle. I love that you say that, you know, they're questioning, you know, well, I don't know if questioning is the right word, but they're sort of judging, I guess, his, his leadership. And, and then he has to come out and, you know, we talked about earlier, he has to give this speech that's going to rouse them. He has to lead them to battle. He has to Mm -hmm. convince them to be ready to, to, to be prepared. And he gives us, and he, he gives us rousing speech after 
you know, Westmoreland says, there's not enough of us. And then mm-hmm. he has to tr- he has to take that seed of doubt and turn it around to the point where the guy's like, let's go do it ourselves, you know, just the two of us. Um, and and so he, the, his leadership is being questioned, and then he has to prove it, you know, not just on the battlefield, but before the battle. He has, right. to, he has to prepare his men emotionally, not just strategically, to go fight much more well armed and better prepared and you know, much more sizable right. army. Healthy and, and well fed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and I mean, obviously he succeeds in that in, in as much as they won. Um, but he also, you know, he seems to view that as, well, I guess this is why they call him the Christian King, right? Mm-hmm. He seems to view that as not something he, that he accomplished, right? Like as soon as the, the messenger, the French Herald says the day is yours. What's the first mm-hmm. thing he says? Oh, I don't know. Praised be God. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one, you know, I remember Branagh, I think plays that, that line. Yeah. Around, sort of, he has this long pause and his mouth's kind of just open as he, and it's like, he's trying to think yeah. what, what is it that I'm like, what is the thing that I'm going to say? The, the, the words aren't coming. Hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know yet whether the day is ours or yours. And then, the mess the herald says the day is yours and i believe he yeah he says this is uh five four point seven line 86 or so the right. day is yours praise it be god and not our strength for it hmm. and then he tells them you know then he ends up telling him to to sing the you know what's that um no nobis no nobis domine domine yeah that that seems beautiful and that's in that movie that's mm, lovely yeah. and so you see him in in the moment when he could most be like, "Hey, we did it," hmm. you know, we did. We were the the band of brothers. We we stood up to this the evil empire. We we did what we came to do. We they insulted us, and we we preserved our honor and we fought nobly. You know, we did all those things. He he doesn't get back up on the on the the pedestal and give another speech. Right. He, he says he's merciful to the to the French. He's like, go go do what you need to do with your with your dead and, and he gives glory to God. And then he says, he gets all the people together and says, you know, this is the song we're going to sing. This is how we're going to, going to move on. And then he has the little reconciliation moment of reconciliation with the guy from the fire. Right. <laughs> I just think it's so interesting the way he, he responds to the victory, you know, the, mm-hmm. he has all this build up to it, gives these big speeches. And afterwards there really aren't any speeches. You're right. You are right. And I, I can't believe I'm about to say this because as you know, I'm a huge Henry fan, but everything that you just said has some kind of counterpoint in this scene for those people who wish to think badly of him, mm-hmm. which is why Shakespeare, I mean, m- there are multiple critics who call this Shakespeare's greatest play. And I think a lot of it is because, and this scene's very complex. We talked about that last week again with Act 3. Um, if you want to read it as a straightforward story, you certainly can, but there is so much going on in this act. And to everything you just said, there is, yeah, but, but if he's just conniving and power hungry, if he's just acting the whole time, if it's just more evidence of ceremony, here's what you can point to. You know, and so that is why this scene is so this this play every time i read this play or see it performed i just think of 
like a teeter-totter at a playground with stones stacked on either side that just is like precariously balanced. Um, And, you know, if you remove a stone from one side, it's going to fall over. But Shakespeare never allows there to be any missing stones. So if you want to think that it's all ceremony, you could point to his, uh, one of his soliloquies the night before the battle when he is praying, he's in prayer and he's begging God to be on his side, even though as he admits in prayer to God privately with nobody around that, um, his father has stolen the crown from Richard and he's done, Henry has done all these things to try to make up for it. Um, and that he is not confident that his throne is his. Mm-hmm. And so he begs God, give me victory if you are on my side. So that exclamation of praise be to God could be tied to that. Like, Oh, thank God I get to keep my throne. So it might not be an exclamation of piety as much as an exclamation of the solidifying of power that this represents to him. Mm -hmm. So again, there's that one on each side of the teeter-totter kind of balancing act that's so interesting to discuss with people who read this play. If you're teaching this play or sitting around, you know, doing reader's theater or whatever and acting it, uh, actors have to make choices, you know, and Branagh plays him very much like he is uh, very straightforwardly. Like he just means what he says. Yeah. I'm not ever convinced he means everything that he's saying straightforwardly, but I'm still a fan of his because I understand leadership takes choices. The private moments are certainly telling. And I think, I mean, that's one of the, the big questions early in the play, right? Like what is, what, who is he in private compared to who he is in public and doesn't matter. Like, because when he was younger, he was this way, but now he's this way. And so, you know, I guess the one, that one scene where he's by himself is, what what is that? That's three, that's 4.2, like. It's scene one. Uh, Scene one's long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's at the end. 281. Yeah. Yeah. And he has two moments, um, you know, one longer soliloquy and then one shorter one. The one about Richard II is shorter. And then the one about the ceremony of kingship and is, you know, just the, just directly before it. And that one's a bit longer. And that is very, very, very significant to the play. Like this is kind of the hinge point of, this is the time that we actually get to look and get to know Henry. But, but his soliloquy is all about everything we've been talking about over the last few podcasts, which is the cost of leadership to his humanity Hmm. and the responsibility of being a king. There's a sense of anxiety that comes out in these soliloquies, especially that second shorter one. Yes. Um, And I, you know, at the beginning of this scene, he says, "'Tis good for men to love their present pains upon example." So the spirit is so the spirit is eased, and when the mind is quickened out of doubt, the organs, 
the defunct and dead before break up their drowsy grave and newly move with casted slough and fresh legerity. So I couldn't help but think of his sort of anxiety when I read that. Like it's good for men to to love their present pains because in sort of accepting them and loving them, the mind, you know, that sense of anxiety can sort of be eased in some ways. That's kind of how I, I read that. And, and uh, you know, it it seems like he, these, these soliloquies are about him accessing those present pains in some ways and like figuring out, identifying his anxieties and figuring out the degree to which he can love, love that situation, like love those present pains, as he says. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, and he doesn't really seem to second guess himself. Like there's no, this soliloquy is not about, is my cause just like, am I, uh, well, the second one is well, uh, this, the one about Richard is, but this yeah, he's, longer he's, he's one. Really saying, I, I'm, he's kind of making a deal. Yeah. Yeah, in the Richard one, he is for sure. Yes. Um, and he is admitting, he says, oh, not today. Think not. He's praying, not today, O Lord. Oh, not today. Think not upon the fault my father made encompassing the crown. And he goes on to tell God, remind him in this prayer, all the things that he's done to make up for that, right? Like I buried his body and I, uh, and I have hired all of these people to pray for his soul, and just keep that in mind as I go out and fight for the crown for the crown of France. All the things I've done to make up for my father usurping the throne. Hmm. But in this in the soliloquy before that, he doesn't. He's not really questioning. Or at least I don't. I mean, you can tell me what you think. I. This is a very. Um, it's, it's a long commentary on the nature of kingship, the cost of kingship, the divorce of the man from the ceremony. Uh, he says, what infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy. Uh, and then on the, a little further down, he describes all of the ceremony of the kingship. Tis not the ball and the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial. These are very famous lines and very beautiful poetry, by the way. The crown imperial, the intertissued robe of gold and pearl, the farsed title running for the king, the throne he sits on, nor the tide of pomp that beats upon the high shore of this world. No, not all these thrice gorgeous ceremony, not all these laid in bed majestical can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave. The most wretched slave in the kingdom is going to get better sleep than the king because he has to become the ceremony. So he's not really, you know, in Richard III, there's a similar scene when Richard, the night before the battle, of course, he loses his life. That's the my horse, my horse, my kingdom for the horse scene. But in Richard III, he is ruminating on all the evil that he has done to gain the crown and questioning himself. Uh, and, but in this scene, it's less about that. It's not really soul searching that he's doing. It is just this long rumination on the nature of leadership and the cost that that, the toll that that has taken on him and him coming to the conclusion, I cannot be a regular man. I am not a regular man. I am, this is my burden to bear. 
Hmm. Yeah. It it's a it does seem like a plan sort of about that that I like bird the bearing of burdens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yes. you share the bearing of burdens, and sometimes you ask other people to bear burdens that they don't want to. <laughs> right. Right. And that, that I guess that's part of like the leadership, and that's why that's why the question of whether the causes are just is so important because you're asking people to bear burdens that they would not otherwise wish to bear. Yes. Yes. And as we see earlier just, in this scene, go ahead. No, sorry. I kind of broke up there. Is, is it just to ask them to do so? Right. Exactly. And to that point earlier in this scene, this is the same scene. It's a, like I said, it's a long scene. And those two soliloquies are the end. Before that, we have the prose conversation between Henry Leroy, who is the king in disguise, Michael Williams and John Bates, who are soldiers. And that conversation says exactly what you just said. When the common soldiers are, they they comment, we have no idea if we're in a just war, but that doesn't matter because if we die tomorrow, we don't have to answer for that. When we get to the judgment seat of God, this is their whole point. When we get to the judgment seat of God, he is not going to judge us whether or not we fought in a just war, but if we followed the king, they're saying this right in front of Henry Leroy, you know, right in front of Henry, who is the King. So that, that conversation is what leads to this soliloquy. Once they go off stage, he repeats their words, rephrases them, and then talks about the burden of that. So this entire scene is just a long contemplation of the, of leadership. Mm. And then Right away, we go into, as you pointed out, all the great speeches and the rhetoric and the preparation for battle, the battle itself, and then its aftermath. But this scene is key. Without this scene, this becomes just a whole play about a battle. But this scene makes it about something deeper than that, adds in a lot to the, um, you know, th- this is the thematic scene. If I were teaching this, this is where I would stay. I would definitely cover the rhetoric that's coming up and the St. Crispin Day speech, all of those things. But I would be here for, I would camp out here for a while in hmm. discussing the theme of leadership. Hmm. What would you do with the uh, subsequent scenes between, you know, the the French lords, say, or, you know, Pistol or that sort of thing. What, what, what would be your approach to those things? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the, the English side is a lot more interesting than the French side. Um, the French are a little bit caricatured, I think in this. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Yeah. I think that, that if there is a flaw in the play, it's here. And in the, in the earlier acts, um, the Dauphin, is more of a worthy opponent. He kind of just degenerates. The king disappears. Um, so there's there's just, I think, a lot of a caricature of the French here. And I think that's a bit of a shame because they could make that a little, I think, he, I, I think that could have been better. But I'm sure there's plenty of Shakespearean scholars who would disagree with that and point to a reason for that. Mm. I, that's just my opinion. Um, I suppose there's only so much space you can give in a play like this, but it does, he does, they do feel, they do feel like sort of, I I think, well, here's the thing that I think I have trouble with is who, who, what, 
are they really the enemy? You know, like do they, they don't come across mm-hmm. as enemy enough in some ways, you know, like they're, they're either not right. bad enough or like real, they don't feel like real people. There's, I mean, the caricature I think is a good word. And so I think that that can be a bit of, I mean, I don't know that I want to call it a flaw, but it's a, it's a difficulty or a problem uh, in terms of the experience of the play. Right. Well, and it maybe draws back to where Shakespeare wants us to focus or where you know, I always hesitate. I did. I just did it. I did the thing I don't like, which is what does Shakespeare want? But hmm. what it, <laughs> um, what it could do is keep us on the internal conflicts within Henry himself, within the ranks of the English. They are, as you pointed out, I'm not. I'm not 100 convinced that the French are the antagonist in this in the conflict of this play. They're just the people on the other side of the battle. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and certainly Shakespeare could have written that play. He could have written a play, which is about two, uh, you know, great nations fighting each other. And he could have focused on the international conflict of that, but instead he keeps drawing us back into Henry himself and the satellite characters around him in this act. It's all about that. Um, so, you know, and I think there's a lot to love about that, that we're always looking internally in a play that is about a battle between nations. Mm. Um, so, and, but I think there's a lot to see in this, in those low, low plot characters. There's a lot with pistol. It's, it's, um, who is it? Is it Flewellen and Gower who point us back to Falstaff? There's a lot of echoes Mm -hmm. of Prince Hal in this act. Um, you have, um, the reference to Falstaff, uh, this prank that he plays on Michael Williams, uh, with the gloves and the hat as we get to the end of the act, that's a very Prince Hal thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then you also have the focus, you know, the most famous line in the play, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, right? Like that, this idea of like, we're all in this together, guys. There's no common men. We are all representative of the nation of we are all English and we're going to go out and fight. Yeah. I was struck by the contrast of how the French spoke. I mean, they, even the, even the Herald when he comes after the battle and says, we need to separate our common men from our knights, from our Lords. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, he, the, the French have this, it's sort of like, they have this hierarchy that the that the that the Shakespeare is not ask not applying to the English. It's a much more, I don't call it democratic, but you know, much more mm-hmm. um, unified approach on the English side. Which I suppose, if you're trying to be patriotic, probably is the way to go. Uh, makes right. every man that's on the floor of the globe uh, appreciate what's your, you know, the cause. I suppose a little bit more. The, it certainly off probably creates the pathos for the just the general person who's down there in the down there in the dust of the, of the, the, the floor of the globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. One thing we haven't talked about that I was, that I was thinking about is the, the, the sort of actual history of the play and how this is, you know, I think it's easy to forget that this is one battle and the, it's, it's called the hundred years war. Mm-hmm. Um, it was right in the middle of it. In fact, I believe doing a little reading. I see if I can remember this. I believe that this was the beginning of a whole new wave of the hundred years war. Mm-hmm. It went it from is. Like 1415, which is when this happened to, you know, 
the right. 50s. Well, and it's, yeah. it's the seeds of there's a, there's, there's building towards the war of the roses, which happens. It begins with Henry's son, Henry, the fifth son, Henry, the sixth. Mm-hmm. And that those are, that's where the war of the roses. So this is a very crucial time in English history and a very, very tumultuous time. Mm. Yeah. And of course, Henry only lives nine, eight, eight more years or something. He uh-huh. dies at 36 right before that he would have been the, he would have worn the French crown, but he died a month before the French King died. Um, it took the, the actual treaty scene that they talk about later that the kind of Shakespeare presents probably was about four or five years after the actual battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then two years later he was dead. So he really, <laughs> he really wasn't married to her very long or, you know, there's just the history of it is really fascinating. And it's interesting. Well, and then of course, the strategic part of it, because, well, I don't think it's, I don't think Shakespeare's numbers were completely accurate that he presents here. Right. They say, according to Wikipedia, when I was looking this up, it was what, like six to 10,000 that the English had. And then the French were somewhere between 12 and 36,000, which is pretty funny. Um, and they had about 1200 mounted men and how, what really the, the big difference in the changed modern, well, medieval warfare is, uh, the longbow and Henry and his troops deployed the longbow. And that's what uh, really cut down the cavalry, the, the, the mounted knights of the, of the French. And so there's this, he had this great strategic mind. It seems like, mm-hmm. um, or at least he, his knight, you know, his Lords did at least. And it's interesting to me that Shakespeare doesn't really touch on the strategic elements of the battle. I, I suppose in part, because how do you perform it? Right. He could have at least mentioned it. And he really doesn't place the battle within the historical context particularly, right? Like there's not, it doesn't really talk about, you know, even the chorus doesn't mention, oh, he died later or, you know, there's, and in some ways that plays to this sort of patriotic idea, I think a little better. Because, Mm. you know, if this battle itself is a cause that's not in this sort of, the play doesn't talk about how it's this fraught, hundred years war that went back and forth and ultimately was what the resolution, how, whether that you could say it was resolved. I mean, there's a, you know, scholars believe all kinds of different things about the, I mean, I know the war ended and all that, but it, both sides were, you know, so many people died over the course of those hundred years. So kings died. I mean, the kingdoms, all these kingdoms changed, but if you want it to be truly patriotic, you make it this one cause, right? You make it this one battle. And you mm-hmm. keep it very limited to that, but you do that at the expense of you know placing the play in terms of its larger cultural history. I right. mean, I find that a very interesting choice by Shakespeare. Even and I guess maybe that plays goes back to the sort of rhetorical nature of it. The play itself being a sort of rhetorical tool, right? Uh, and I don't. I'm not saying that Shakespeare without you know his primary goal was to rile up the troops, so to speak. But it's interesting that. If you're going to read it as a patriot in a patriotic way, that's got to be part of it. Um, and if you're, you know, you could, you could be somewhat skeptical of the things that Shakespeare leaves out, or the way he f- fudges some some of the numbers and stuff like that. A hundred, well, what was it? A hundred and um, one hundred and seventy-five years later, one hundred and eighty years later, when he was writing it, right? So, um, fourteen fifteen yes. is the battle, so late fifteen hundreds, right? Is that one? Yeah, yeah, fifteen ninety. I don't totally know what my point seven? is. Yeah. Well, I think that what you're bringing up is really important, David, because the the power 
of the English, like the hold that Henry V and the Battle of Agincourt had on the English imagination wasn't about getting the throne back. It was about winning this battle, Mm -hmm. which because this is a David and Goliath situation, that this king took this bedraggled, diseased, demoralized army. They were stuck, hemmed in on all sides, uh, coming against this unbeatable imperial army, and they defeated them against all odds. And that, it doesn't, in a sense, to your point, it doesn't matter what the battle accomplished. It almost, the, the historical context, what Henry was fighting for is not the point. The point is, oh my gosh, you guys, we won, right? This is the plot of every great war movie. This is, uh, this is Star Wars, you know, from Star Wars to, to Henry V, like from Shakespeare to pop culture, this, this whole idea of winning a stronger opponent against all odds, this is the thing we all desire. This is like the most human desire that we have. Like, I just, I feel so small in the world, but I want to win a battle, right? Like, so that. And even is, Henry, even the king feels small sometimes. Yes. And everything was lost in the next generation. He had a son who was a very weak king. Well, he became and, king. He, Henry, he was months old when Henry died. Yeah. And so his, the he didn't have the, you know, uh, the Henry the Sixth is another play that was well, what a three part play, right? That mm-hmm. Shakespeare wrote, but he didn't have the uh, he didn't have models, you know, that were particularly good, and so he he was thrust into leadership at a very young age, and some of the same things he he endured some of the same things that that Henry is enduring, and some of the same questions that Henry's asking, and the nature of. I, th- I think that makes Henry's questions about the nature of leadership and his sort of struggle with what it means to be a good leader and what it means to be a king right. that much more poignant when you have a boy king coming behind right. him. Right. Well, who started a civil war? Like that's the War of the Roses is is Englishmen against Englishmen, the Yorks versus the Lancasters. And I mean, that's not necessary. Nobody's proud of a civil war. That doesn't inspire patriotism. So... But Henry V won this great battle against France. And in the Hundred Years' War in which the French are, you know, villainized. And so, like, this was a remarkable moment in English history. And in Shakespeare's time, you have the, the queen, the, uh, Queen Elizabeth against the Spanish Armada. It's a very similar kind of story with a sa- very similar um, rousing of patriotism in which all of his audience would have recognized that, right? Like this is an homage to the queen just as much as it is a remembrance of our history. Hmm. Like you did the same thing, Queen Elizabeth. And, and, and there was this surge of great, pa- nobody expected anything out of Queen Elizabeth. You know, she was this Protestant. She was a woman. She didn't have any children. She wasn't married. And she turned out to be, to this day, recognized as one of, hands down, one of England's greatest rulers, one of the world's greatest rulers. And so that, there's very much on people's consciousness. There was that parallel to the leadership of their own day, but she was coming to the end of her reign. She was old and sick and nobody knew who was going to be queen after her. So the issue of succession very much weighing 
um, in producing anxiety in the English psyche. Mm. Um, so it, there's a lot of parallels to Shakespeare's contemporary culture. I'm really glad you mentioned the War of the Roses being between the Yorks and the Lancasters, because of course we have York and Lancaster being two of the primary lords, the commanders that are following Henry. And even York takes the lead of the, the leader. He leads the vanguard, right? And dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that certainly would have been, you know, they, then their two families fought for the crown, what, 40 years later for, for 32 mm-hmm. years or whatever it was for 30 plus years. They yes. fought for the crown to the, to the point where it wasn't the Lancaster line, like extinguished. It was just, I mean, the entire country was demoralized. There are battles everywhere, people killing each other. There's all this money being spent scheming. And it was just, it was a really, I mean, interesting. If you're a historian, like fascinating, you're going to be bored until you get there. And then you're like, whoa, this stuff's really cool. But <laughs> it's, it's fun to study now. But man, if you are an Englishman living through the War of the Roses or having that kind of weighing. I mean, this is, Shakespeare was pretty shortly afterwards. The, and it was Henry VII, Henry VIII's father. So it was the queen's grandfather whose birth and uh, who, who ended, excuse me, not his birth, but whose reign ended the, um, the War of the Roses. So this is very close to when Shakespeare was writing. Hmm. He was a brave man, honestly. Some of these, I think that's yeah. why so much of the that his subversive content is so subtle in a lot of these history plays. <laughs> Gotta play that cool a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you can go to um, you can go to Agincourt now in northern France and go to the battlefield and wouldn't that um, be really cool? Would love to do that. I'm just so fascinated by the modern estimates range from twelve thousand to thirty six thousand French killed at Agincourt 6,000 to no, sorry, 1,500 to 11,000 killed Hmm. of the 12,000 to 36,000 and then 112 to 600 English killed with an unknown wounded 22 up to 2,200 French were captured as well. That's it's interesting that I'm going to have to look up some of the strategic, you know, elements of this um, a little bit, a little bit more, but I, I love how Shakespeare pits this play in its historical context. I mean, he, so he, in some ways he doesn't, right? He doesn't particularly talk about it. But Mm -hmm. then on the other hand, he does mention Edward the Black Prince, for example. And Mm -hmm. so you had these other battles, you know, uh, uh, I I can't remember the names of the other French battles or the battles between the English and the French during the Hundred Years War in the 1300s. and then on the other side of him, you have the War of the War, War of the Roses. So the English people would have recognized that this battle sort of sits at this inflection point, and it could have meant something so much different had Henry lived. Mm-hmm. You know, does the war the the does the, the, does the Hundred Years' War end? Does the War of the Roses never happen if Henry lives? Right. So had he li- had he won winning this battle, and had he lived, what would the history of England? looked like what would the um i mean certainly right. I guess you may never even had like a you know with the tudor line the tudor line would never have theoretically ever of taken right. power right yes at the end of the, so yes which this play and this entire series this henriad um actually both of the tetralogies of the henry's the four henry plays really taps into the anxiety of fatherlessness as well just as you're pointing out 
know, this man, Henry, who's a great leader, whether you like him or not, he is a great leader here. He is going to leave a fatherless son who is going to then lose the kingdom and lose everything his father fought for. He marries a French princess who turns out to dominate him. Like there's all these really, you know, that, that the, the majority of the people in Shakespeare's audience would be very much aware of. And he delves into in the, in the Henry the six plays, which confusingly enough were written before these plays. So he actually writes about Henry's son before he wrote the second. Right. right. That was one of his so, earliest plays, right? It was. Yes. And she, the, the wife of Henry the sixth, Margaret, she's a remarkable female Shakespearean character. She doesn't get enough play. Um, so there's, there's so much anxiety of succession which has to do entirely with fathers and sons that kind of haunts all of these plays. Uh, and we see that with the conflict between Henry V and his own father, Henry IV, or Bolingbroke, who usurped the throne from Richard II. And earlier, I think on the first podcast, we talked some about the symmetry of these plays. Um, the, you know, if, you, if you're looking for chiasm, you know, then I can give you a couple of, I can give our listeners a couple of chiastic things that happen here in this particular act that have to do with the first play, Richard II. Um, So, um, in Richard II, uh, it is a glove that begins the fight between, that that kind of starts all of the action of the play. a character comes and throws a glove before another character, which starts this. Um, yeah, well, you, that's, that, you don't do that. Right. <laughs> so then we see that in this act, right? This, this glove that happens. Between, it's a very significant moment between Michael Williams. There's a lot of, um, like throwing a glove has a lot of cultural weight in this time that it doesn't necessarily have here. So if you see characters using gloves to represent duels or conflicts, um, that, you know, we've kind of lost the symbolism of that. We under, we know that it's there, but we don't feel it the same way they would have, right? So um, you have the glove chiasm, uh, one starts a conflict, this one, the king actually ends it. What happens in Richard II is because there's this duel between these characters, Richard tries to use it for his gain, and then it escalates. That particular conflict escalates and leads to him being deposed by Bolingbroke. In this play, you have Powell with restraint managing the conflict and then finally filling the glove with money and giving it to his opponent to close and end the conflict in a kingly fashion. He absorbs the insult instead of escalating it. Um, mm. Also, we have, again, the idea of the mirrors. In, in Richard II, there's a very famous scene in which Richard is being deposed. Bolingbroke is going to take the throne, and he gives, uh, and Richard asks his servants to bring him a mirror. And so the servants do, and Richard sits, and he stares at his own face in the mirror, and then he gives this long speech about uh, giving up the throne. And he, uh, 
And in this play, in Henry V, he's called the mirror of all Christian kings used in a positive sense. And we've talked a lot about the symbolism that I'm not going to go into it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that mirror speech, Richard comes to the same conclusion that Henry does, which is the king is just a man. But Richard's conclusion is the king is just a man, so kingship doesn't matter. Only the man matters. And that's how he comforts himself as he leaves the throne. That's the conclusion he comes to. Henry comes to the opposite conclusion. A king is just a man, so the kingship matters. So I'm going to sublimate and subject my humanity to my role as king. And then that leads to victory and stability. So also is a lot of Christ and messianic imagery uh, uh, and themes in both Richard and in for both Richard and for Henry. And in every single one of them, uh, Richard comes off worse than Henry. (laughs) He dies. um, He's betrayed. Both of them are betrayed by friends in their plays. Um, both of them have kind of a, a long night, a long, dark night of the soul. Of course, for Henry, we're seeing it in this act when he's disguising himself and going amongst his troops and having this soliloquy. So that is kind of his Gethsemane, right? Before the battle, before the victory, before he lays down his life for his people. Of course, he doesn't die, but it's the same idea. But for Richard, he has this Gethsemane in the tower. And then the next day, he, the next day he's killed. So... Hmm. Um, there, we talked some about this play being a capstone of the Henry plays. And, and so what Richard II does is introduce all of these themes that are inverted and then redeemed through the play of Henry V. Um, hmm. So, and, but what's interesting is that Shakespeare also subverts that in the sense that Richard is actually a much more likable kind of person. Um, he's gregarious, he's funny, uh, and Henry like, is like more taciturn and internal. Yeah. yeah, he is. He is, he, and he counts on that so much he loses the throne. Whereas Henry doesn't care, or he doesn't, maybe he does, but he chooses then to again sublimate that to his role as king. Um, he, he gives up all of his friendships, um, and whereas Henry Richard tries to hold on to them and use them, and then those people end up betraying him, and he ends up being usurped and losing his life. So there's all of these threads that are thrown out in Richard II that are then picked up and tied and, and, and resolved in Henry V, which would be another interesting thing to teach, especially if you're going through all the plays. Hmm. <clears throat> And then, and then, of course, I suppose you can just look at the, you know, we've just spent 15 minutes talking about the history and this sort of larger context. But you, I mean, this, a play like this, you can look at as such an independent thing as well, which is what we've done for most of these shows. I mean, they work so well without any of that knowledge, right? You can, mm-hmm. like, there's no, I mean, there's nothing saying you have to spend all your time on the history of it if you, I mean, the context is useful, but you can still, right. it's still a great piece of literature that you can study on it just completely for its own sake if you wish to. Absolutely. You don't need to know any of this stuff. And that's what makes Shakespeare so great, which we've talked about this. You can rhapsodize even more about it. But Mm. if you want to dig, 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 dig into Shakespeare, you can, and it's almost bottomless. Um, But you can also read the play and discuss it and talk about it and learn from it as a standalone play without any specialized knowledge at all. And that, that's what, that's what makes it worth delving into that's what what makes it great yeah the specialized knowledge thing is such an interesting part you know we talked about it but part of this history place 
Um, and I think that's where if, if, if Shakespeare wasn't so careful about the way he crafted characters, then all that stuff would be that much more necessary. Right. Like, because mm-hmm. he one well, one, because he has, can, he creates language that's just beautiful in and of itself. It's worth studying, but also because he manages to create characters, the French villain, quote unquote villains, notwithstanding, um, because those characters are so richly drawn and are asking such rich questions, that specialized knowledge is not inherently necessary. And I think that that's all bound up in the characters and in the questions they're asking and the things that they're sort of trying to um, work through deep within themselves. Right. It's true of the comedies. It's true of the the tragedies. Um, the, it's 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 the questions these characters are asking themselves is what makes the plays, you know, truly transcendent. The language mm-hmm. gets us there in a sublime way, but the transcendence comes from these these deeply human questions that these deeply human characters, these richly human characters are asking. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, one of the things that makes Shakespeare... It's one of the reasons why it lasts. I mean, we've been talking... This show is going to always talk about, like, why does this play last? Why does Shakespeare last? And that's, that's part of it. We can't really ever get away from just kind of being in awe of the fact of what he accomplished. <laughs> right, right. That's true. Do you, do you have... I mean, we've gone for over an hour. Do you, do you have any kind of wrap up thoughts for this act because I know this you it's long act it's hard to you can't we can't cover everything so we've kind of gone a broad sort of uh, approach to it but are there any particular moments or scenes or anything that you want to comment on before we go yeah I have was struck this time reading Henry V um, by the St. Crispin Day speech and a lot of the comments that Henry makes in this act and the ones that have come before i've been thinking a lot about uh the the shakespearean vision for the hero and for honor and that's because and i want to hear your thoughts on this david um Hmm. so i've listened to i i like to listen to homer i do read homer too but i like to listen to it better um so I've listened to the Iliad three times this year, just, and, um, and well, I guess it was last year in 2018. And so I'm kind of just saturated in this idea of the Homeric hero and um, what an honor and glory to in the classics. And so I couldn't help but pay a lot of attention, close attention to that in Henry V. And in that St. Crispin Day speech, he he talks about, I mean, it, it all comes from the comment that is made to him that we wish, you know, he wishes they had more soldiers. And then he goes off and he gives this long stirring speech. And, um, but one of the points that he makes in the speech is because there are so few of us, we will eat, we will gain more honor and glory. Mm-hmm. Because of that. Mm-hmm. Then he really, really, really pushes this idea, emphasizes this idea of the community of that, that they are heroes kind of as one entity of Englishmen. Right. And I was yeah. thinking about how different that is from the Homeric idea of uh, the Homeric ideal of the individual, the lonely, the solitary hero. Right. So that, mm. you know, Achilles is fighting for his own glory. Mm. 
um, and all of them, you know, they would even, even in, in the Iliad, if you're paying attention, like they, they will step back, like the soldiers surrounding a particular Homeric hero will step back and allow him to fight so that he will gain more glory. That happens to Ajax, happens to Achilles. They'll, Ajax will be fighting the Greek, uh, excuse me, the Trojans and the soldiers surrounding him will get out of his way so that he can win glory by killing more Trojans. Yeah. It's an Aristea, man. Exactly. Right. Because that's what glory is to the Homeric hero. It's mine. Mm. It's Achilles is the only one who even comes remotely close to including his own army in his glory. He is the only one who sometimes refers to the Myrmidons. That's, that's really interesting when you compare it to like, say the end of the Odyssey where in a way Telemachus and Odysseus are like sort of back to back, right? That's sort of, they're having this Aristea together. Right. I mean, I'm not, I haven't read that scene in a while in thinking about that, but that's how I remember it at least. You're exactly right. Which goes again, if you're comparing, like just noticing all these ties between these, you know, these echoes between Shakespeare and Homer. And to your point, that goes to the issue of fathers and sons, right? Fatherlessness that to, to Odysseus, Telemachus is himself, right? They, they belong together, but his army is just his army, right? They, they, they all just kind of die along the way and he cries for a minute and then he moves on. Yeah, they're statistics. Yeah, exactly. They are, but not to Henry. Hmm. Like his call to action is we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. We are, but his appeal is still to glory and honor, mm-hmm. right? But, but the glory and the honor is communal, which that makes sense for Henry V because of his past with, because he was Prince Hal with his band of brothers at the East Chump Tavern. Right, so he still has, in many ways, that mi- this mindset uh, that that even if you judge him, there's a little bit of redemption of that here. This, which I don't judge him, I think that this speech is the preparation of that life. He has a mindset of community, and his the greatest tragedy in his life is that he has to give that up because he's the king, except in battle. Mm. So I've just been thinking about that a lot. These. The appeal is still to glory and honor, but it's communal, whereas the Homeric appeal is just the warrior on his own. So I don't know that you, you mentioned the fathers and sons part of it, because even Henry says yeah. this is the story that a good father is going to tell his son. He does say that. That's exactly this right. This story shall the good man teach his son, and crisp and crispy and shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. Mm-hmm. He does. Yep. The appeal of generations. Why are you? How are you going to be remembered? What is your your glory and your honor in battle? And, and to that that generations thing is key because that line about the father teaching the son. He doesn't just say we'll be remembered, but he says they're going to pass this on from one generation to the next forever. It's not. This isn't just going to be a story or a legend. It's going to be something that is part of the tradition. It's part of the the culture. It's going to be preserved. It's not going to. You know, the people are going to. They're going to wish they had been here. Um, and, and it's going to be, you know, we're going to be rem- remembered as more than just um, individual soldiers, to, to your point. You know, he said, we're, it's not just that we're going to be remembered as Harry the King or Bedford and Exeter and so forth, but we're right. going to be remembered for what we accomplished together. And it's going to be part of the tradition. It's going to be passed on from one generation to the next. It's not just going to be, you know, th- th- that, that sense of preservation, I think, is important there. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, completely. it seems like 
that's one of the, that's one of the things that he seems to be thinking about as he's going to battle, even what am I preserving here? Right. That preservation of, of a culture in some ways seems to be a theme of the yes. itself. And it's communal. It belongs to all of us. And as you pointed out earlier in the podcast, that's contrasted with the French who their, their only demand Henry was let us go pick out the, the, our, um, our lords, our nobility, because we don't want the, the, basically what he says is we don't want their blood to be soaked up by the common man. Yeah. Which again is an, there's an element of caricature in that, but that is clearly meant to be contrasted against what Henry is claiming and rousing his men, the patriotism of the St. Crispin day speech. Like we're all in this together. We win glory together. glory and honor and memory, which are the main themes of the Iliad. These are the main themes of the St. Crispin day speech, but they're passed in a communal way instead of an individual way. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm even struck by like the way he, Henry uh, brings all the, all the soldiers into sort of into the fold. I mean, even when the Herald comes right before the battle, he says, good God, why should they mock poor fellows thus? It's not like, right. why do they come and mock the crown? Why do they mock me? But so why are they mocking all of us? Um, at the end of the battle, I'm trying to find it. But he basically says, God, God did us great. He did us great good, right? It's not yes. just that he preserved yes. the crown for yes. me or whatever. He's, he's amidst his soldiers after the battle and he's saying, God did us great good. Um, he, he's not just with his lords. He's with, these kind of middle ranking officers, right? He, he's among his people, which I think is uh, a very telling bit of characterization there. Yes. But then of course, Westmoreland says, Hey, let's you and I go do this. That he rises them to that point. And Henry's like, well, let's do it together. <laughs> right. Right. Um, all right. Well, last chance for any one more final thought, anything you else you want to add before? I we, do not I mean, have any more final thoughts. How about you? Do you have any final thoughts? I do not. We will be able to answer <laughs> questions. I mean, act five is short, so we'll be able to wrap some things into that as we think about the conclusion of the play and we will do a Q and a episode. So if you have, if you're listening along with us and you do have some questions, you can email us at uh, close reads, at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media on the Facebook page or on Instagram. And we'll answer any questions that you have uh, there at the end. Uh, in two weeks. So next week, we'll, we will discuss Act 5. And uh, don't forget about all the other things going on here on the network. We have the Close Reads uh, flagship show where we'll be discussing Reigns of the Day starting next week, uh, starting on January 11th. That one will go up. Don't forget about the Daily Poem. We've got a lot of other great content. You can follow us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, of course. And then there's the email newsletter. If you sign up for that over on closereadspods.com, you can find all the reading schedules and all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of ways to get in touch and keep up. Uh, and I'll be posting the complete, the place, the thing, and the complete Close Reads shows on Instagram later today. So you'll be able to see both of those schedules up through the summer if you'd like to take a look at that. So I guess that's it. You good, Heidi? Anything else? No, I'm good. Thanks, David. Of course, yeah. All right, well, for Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.